0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O oh Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. All right, welcome back to Credal Catholic. Uh, today is our inaugural episode of what we're calling, we haven't we haven't really workshopped this yet, and Kevin, I haven't run this by you, but encyclopedia,
1: Encyclicalpedia, I like it. Encyclicalpedia.
0: And uh, I haven't introduced Kevin yet either, but Kevin is sitting across from me. Kevin's a good friend of mine from... Well, long ago, I guess, I, I think we became close friends when we were living in the same area four years ago or so. Yeah, sounds right. And uh, yeah, we be, we I knew he was Catholic before I became Catholic. And then I became Catholic and he congratulated me. And then uh, one thing led to another and we got into knee-deep theological discussions and then some. And now we're both living in Colorado here. So Kevin reached out to me and said, hey, I like what you're doing with Credo Catholic. Would love to be a part of that. So I said, let's... Uh, talk about Veritata Splendor.
1: Wait, you said that? I thought well, I said that. No, no, no. What
0: happened was, I asked you what you were reading lately. Right. And you said Veritata Splendor. Right. And I said, well, let's talk about that on the podcast.
1: Okay. Pretty sure that's what happened. Well, it's still my fault. <laughs> <laughs> I'm claiming totally. this. I'm not letting you claim this. Uh, is this the first encyclical you've ever read? It is not. Um, so... The oh my gosh, what's the first one I read? The first one I may have actually ever read was probably Evangelii Gaudium, which mm-hmm. was uh, one of Pope Francis's. But that was uh, probably my introduction, uh, and then several of uh, Pope Benedict's, of course, uh, wonderful documents there. And it just got me uh, kind of very interested in these papal documents, and it's been off to the races from there.
0: Yeah, behind you on my bookshelf uh, is Deus Caritas Est. God absolutely, yeah, Benedict. I've not read it fully yet, but. It's on my list, which is why it's on the book. It's actually it's sitting on the bookshelf horizontally because I just had to hastily throw it on there when you came in because oh. I had to clear some space off the desk and everything.
1: Right, and I, I think I actually have to issue a correction already. I oh, think the first wow. one, I, the first one I read was uh, *Lumen Fidei*, okay, which yeah. has, uh, of course, the great distinction of being the first, to my knowledge, the first ever uh, papal encyclical that was written by two popes. Begun by uh, Benedict and then right, finished, finished by, by Francis. By Francis. Yeah, yeah,
0: because Francis was, let me actually look up the dates on this so I can get it accurate, but uh, it was only shortly after about the, three beginning, yeah, be, the beginning. three weeks. Yeah, the beginning of the weeks, Francis yeah. Episcopate that uh, Lumen Fidei came out. I was like, wow, he's really he's really yeah. buckled down. Already. Turn it yeah. out already. Ready but, to go. Yeah, so June 29th, 2013, and the election of Pope Francis was, uh, it was in March 2013.
1: March 2013. Yeah.
0: I think, I think Palm Sunday was his first Sunday as Pope, something like that. Mm -hmm. But we were there actually in Rome for Palm Sunday in 2013. We weren't Catholic yet. Right. We were actually walking around like, what is this place? (laughs) (laughs) This is just all too much. (laughs) And it was interesting. We were, we were certainly on our journey to the Catholic church at that point. Mm -hmm. And we had lots of friends who were encouraging us to read and investigate. And so we thought, well, this is great. We just, we should just go to Rome. Mm -hmm. So we did, we were living in England at the time and I was on spring break for grad school, so we hopped across the pond, as they say, and went to Italy, and it, it, we had a great time. Like, you know, the food was great. The architecture was of beautiful. Course, of course, But um, the interesting thing was, we generally describe it to people as setting us back on our path to Rome, mm-hmm. and that might be a counterintuitive conclusion, but, but I think it really did, and the reason is that as we were walking around, we were certainly struck by the beauty. We were struck mm-hmm. by... The, the permanence of everything. But we also saw a lot of papal names on buildings of state. And we saw a lot of other indications to suggest that the church and the state have been messily bound for mm-hmm. so much of the church's history. Right. And of course, all that's perfectly true. Um, but I think at the time we didn't realize how important it was that the fact that the church has survived all this time, says more about it than about any other institution in human existence. Right, absolutely. Because it's it's the one that has survived the longest. And not only has it survived, I would argue that it's thrived. Right. Not to say that the church today doesn't have any problems. It has lots of problems, <laughs> and it always will. And Jesus' words themselves prophesy of that. But it is to say that the church today does amazing work and is full of incredible mm-hmm. men and women who will go on to become saints. And the church victorious, of course, is filled with with all the saints. So... um. Or the church triumphant. Right. Um, so anyway, <laughs> brief, brief history lesson on uh, our journey to the church. But right. uh, that trip in 2013 to Rome where we saw Pope Francis celebrate Palm Sunday Mass was an interesting uh, an interesting
1: little detour on right. our eventual path to I'm sure to it's Rome. a very, uh, it's, it's got to be a very um, intense experience, especially as an outsider Um or, or maybe someone who's making their way uh, into to experience something of that magnitude. Um, but I will say, you know, I, I completely a novice on this matter. I have never been to Rome. So oh, you I'll just be, you know, jealous of you and, and, and hopefully get there before too long.
0: You definitely should. Um, maybe we'll arrange a trip together. <clears throat> I do have a question for you though, Kevin. So I don't think I mentioned Kevin's last name folks, but Kevin Boschman spelled B E A U C H E. M I N.
1: Okay. Now public public information, everyone. There yeah, we go. It is. It's out there.
0: <laughs> it's out there now. Um but Kevin's not married. And I've always wondered why Kevin's not a priest. So what do you think, Kevin?
1: <laughs> wow, that's uh that that's quite a um, quite a way to to bring me onto the show. Yeah. Um everything in God's time. that's <laughs> my end. You know, so there's
0: still a chance. You're w- saying there's there's a chance.
1: Well, I mean I think any um any young man or just any, any male who is, is seeking as uh, a vocation has to at least remain open to that always. And, um, so if, if that's the path that, that God has in store for me, then, you know, we'll see how that journey, uh, how that journey plays out or, uh, if there's another route or, um, I think it's, it's always an exercise in, in remaining open to, to God's will, whatever that might be.
0: Very true. And, uh, you know I'm just giving you a hard time, Kevin, but we, Kevin and I have this inside joke that has been years long now at this point that he's one day going to become a Dominican. So <laughs> I, 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 on a pretty regular basis, rib him a little bit about that and about how it's true. he will eventually become a Dominican. I, I uh, am about 80% serious 80%. On, that, on that assertion. Oh, okay. So we'll see. We'll see. Um, <laughs> but but I think you're right that every young man does need to constantly discern that vocation, and that, by the way, is not unique to men. Now, obviously, women can't discern a vocation to the priesthood, but they can right. discern a vocation to religious life, and those are important questions to ask, and until you figure out your vocation, you should be continually discerning it. Absolutely. You shouldn't just be complacent on the path that you find yourself. You should always be discerning, so um, I'll keep praying for you as you do <laughs> <We> that. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> um, well, we should we should get started with encyclopedia and talk about <laughs> Veritatis Splendor. Um, this encyclical was one of John Paul II's, or St. John Paul the Great, as Mm -hmm. he's known now, St. Pope John Paul II. And this was published, or released, I should say, on August 6th, 1993. So I think that's an important thing to note when we're talking about this, just that The historical context of this encyclical is very important. And so if you back up to 1993, we are a mere two years removed from the fall of the Soviet Union, four years removed from the fall of the the Berlin Wall. Those are processes that JP2 was, uh, I would argue, and many people have, uh, like George Weigel, for example, instrumental in causing, right? Because uh, John Paul II, the witness to hope, he is the one who was going making trips to Poland, right? And exhorting the people to faithfulness and um, standing up to the, uh, autocratic, godless tyranny mm-hmm. of the Eastern and Soviet bloc. So, um, two years after that, I think we're on this we're on this trend. Uh, we certainly see it in America, but I would argue elsewhere in the world too, where the general thinking across the world is that secular reason has won the day, freedom uh, is victorious, and freedom will always be victorious over autocracy and stricture and You know, I think there's elements of truth in that. Freedom is certainly better than bondage, and that's a lot of what this encyclical is about. But I think John Paul II also recognizes in these movements what he calls de-Christianization. So he sees that triumph of freedom um, as actually threatening Christianity and Christian ideas Um, Because it is accompanied by a general godlessness or a lack of faith in God. And so it basically effectively severs freedom from a fundamental understanding of what it means to be human and what we're created for. Um, In addition to that, within the church itself, there are revisionists, theological revisionists, who are challenging the authority of the magisterium on faith and morals. And they're attempting to redefine established church teaching, and going back and saying the church had it wrong here and here, and really this is the case. And JP two um, wants to—I'm just going to call him that for shorthand. I don't mean any disrespect <laughs> to the great saint, uh, but JP two wants to set the record straight on this and and say no, the authority of the church is real. This is uh, where it is. This is what it is. And it has a concomitant role of safeguarding our understanding of human freedom. And so that's what this encyclical is about. The bottom line is that authentic freedom can only be understood within the law of God.
1: Right. Absolutely. And you know, this the the early nineties, the late eighties. It's the time of um, the proclamation of the end of history, right? This is the idea that uh, democracy has won, as you said, and it's the final say and, and uh, the church knows that history is not complete until until God deems it complete and Christ comes and, and brings us into his kingdom. Uh, but ultimately, you know, we look at this document, this papal encyclical, and when you look at a papal document, they have you know the address right up front about who the audience is. And especially if you see some of uh, Pope Francis's in recent times, typically addressing, um, the episcopacy, brother right. priests, the lay people, and the lay faithful. And and what's interesting um, about this particular encyclical is the audience is very clear. It's the episcopate. It's the bishops and cardinals who are uh, the leaders of the church. And I think we have to read it in that context, uh, especially as lay people, uh, to be careful that uh, we're cognizant of who that audience is. These are people who are very, very educated in the faith and ordained and have a very particular charism. But at the same time, we can take lessons from it as well. And uh, a lot of this Uh, encyclical is talking about um, some trends in moral theology, and it is uh, John Paul II's, uh, as you said, it's his stance basically saying that moral theology is a great help to the church, but moral theology must always be constrained by the teachings of the magisterium and that on all matters of faith uh, is ultimately the ma- teaching of the magisterium and not moral theology that takes precedence.
0: Yeah, and I think on, on that last point, at the end of this encyclical, he goes into his moral theology emphasis a little bit more. I mean, it's it's all throughout there, but he speaks specifically to moral theologians at the end mm-hmm. and exhorts them in saying, you have a very important task mm-hmm. because you, it is your job to help the faithful know what is in and out of bounds. And if you mess that up, that's devastating for souls, right? Absolutely. So the stakes are so much higher when we're talking about moral theology than we're talking about, uh, I don't know, an umpire at a baseball. Game, right? <laughs> right. This is this is not just a game. This is this has eternal ramifications for people's souls. So I think maybe we can just talk about the the general context a little bit more, Kevin, and then we'll go into some general questions about this. So I think we've we've sort of talked about talked about the context, talked about the very general ideas, but on the point of freedom, you mentioned. Francis Fukuyama's idea of the end of history, right? Mm-hmm. The freedom is triumph. Secular reason is overcome communism, yada, yada, yada. Well, uh, I think the maybe if you can sort of summarize this encyclical in one sentence or two, it would be that freedom is not its own end and that freedom has to be viewed and interpreted and acted on as something that enables us to choose God or to reject him. Mm-hmm. That is what freedom is all about. So freedom is not a good in and of itself. God is the good and freedom is good insofar as it allows us to choose God.
1: Right. Insofar so far as it allows us to follow what is true.
0: Right. Exactly. <laughs> and and the truth is not up for debate. This no. is not relative. This is not up to each person's autonomy. The freedom that each person has does not mean that they have the freedom to say what is and is not good. It only means that they have the ability to choose what is good. Right. Uh, to order their affections and more importantly perhaps their actions towards mm-hmm. what is good. So it's the truth is not up to each individual, individual conscience but freedom at the same time is very important. And so JP2 is very very adamant that freedom is good. Freedom is right. a part of God's design and this is this is the thing that's so wonderful about the Christian life and this is perhaps uh, perhaps one could say this is the light of truth or the splendor of truth that right. we are made free. And that's a key part of God's design for humanity, but the freedom that we have is in the scope uh, as I said of action and affection what we choose to love and what we choose to do rather than ontology. We can't, we can't will ourselves into or out of existence. Only God can do that. Right? Mm -hmm. So only God has the freedom to affect what is and is not. We have the freedom to choose what to do and, um, and how we do it and what we love. Right? So, um, that's the question that confronts each person, um, and each Christian, but, but more broadly each person, do we follow Christ or do we not? and the whole first I don't know the third of the encyclical mm-hmm. or so has this wonderful meditation on Matthew chapter 19. Isn't it great? Yeah, it really <laughs> is. And it was so good this week because the the daily mass reading on Monday was that passage. Right. So I'd been reading this on Sunday uh and into Monday and then went to mass on Monday and was like, "Oh my goodness, there it is. This is <laughs> wow. Now I now I see this in such a different light." Um and and JP2's meditation on it is really beautiful because this young man comes to Jesus and says uh Essentially, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus lists lists off many of the commandments. Um, mm-hmm. I think love your neighbors, yourself, and um, uh, you know, don't commit adultery right. and don't steal, et cetera. I'm going to look up the exact
1: right. exact it's, it's passage. I think it's the back half of the of the Decalogue, right? The second tablet. Yeah, that, I think so. it says <laughs> the second tablet in
0: the encyclical. Yeah, and so um, the young man says, uh, "Well, all these." Let me just read here, starting in verse verse 20. So Matthew chapter 19, verse 20, the young man said to him, said to Jesus, all these I have observed. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. (laughs) And um, that's sort of a downer of an ending to that passage, Right. right? Because the young man doesn't just walk away rejoicing that, you know, oh, great, I followed all the commandments, I'm going to heaven, yay, this is wonderful. But rather he walks away despondent, depressed perhaps, because Jesus has given him a choice and Jesus has helped him realize the cost of following Jesus. And I think uh, the implicit lesson for us and JP2 makes it explicit in this encyclical is that it can cost a lot to
1: follow Jesus. Absolutely, and it, I mean, I think one of the things he reflects on that's so incredible is the word, the words that Christ speaks in that if you would be perfect and it reminds us that we are called to be perfect and not only are we called to be perfect but Christ has laid out the path for our own perfection right it's not it's not an impossibility I mean it's it might be impossible in our current state uh, as we are the 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 way our souls are ordered at this point in time but there is a path to perfection and it is achievable and it's Christ himself who is telling us about that possibility
0: right yeah exactly Um, let's have some actual questions about this as we discuss it. So (laughs) the first thing I wanted to talk about is the title of this, Veritatis Splendor. Um, the Latin translation of that is, I think you, I think you, you, you know more Latin than I do, but as I understand it, it is the uh, genitive possessive case of truth. So it's Mm -hmm. basically truth's splendor, but that sort of is awkward in the English vernacular. So we call it the splendor of truth,
1: right? We put the oven there. Yeah, exactly. So, so probably
0: a slightly, uh, a less literal interpretation, but probably a better meaning translation. Mm -hmm. Um, So what do you make of the title? What what do you think about that? The splendor of truth.
1: It's incredible, right? I mean, it comes straight from as all these documents, it comes straight from the first line of the exhortation and, and JP two puts it right there. He says, the splendor of truth shines forth in all the works of the creator. And uh, I think we kind of spoke about this uh, a little bit already um, as we were preparing, but you know, truth for especially our kind of modern sensibilities, you wouldn't hear that in a science class, right? You wouldn't hear, Oh, this isn't the truth. It's the splendor of truth. I think uh, sometimes uh, you might hear someone talk even in a scientific sense about how something is beautifully. Sure. Yeah. And you might hear that, but you know, you're talking about an order of facts, whereas this is talking about truth, right? Which is something that goes beyond even fact to the very core of, of what is happening. And, um, you know, when when we think about and reflect on the, the place of truth and, in the gospel, and we think about light as well, uh, and how uh, kind of the, the the word splendor evokes this sense of light, right? Like a bright light, it's splendid, it's shining, shining forth. And we see this, especially, I think, in the gospel of John. One of uh, kind of my favorite places to go for these references to to, to light and to truth in that relationship. And right in the first chapter there, right, John 1 uh, verses 3 through 5, John uh, has that beautiful uh, prologue and he says, what came to be through him was life and this life was the light of the human race. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And we hear frequently even Christ's own words in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And we get this there through that linkage of truth and light and, and Christ himself, we see that the splendor of truth really is Christ himself, right? And the teachings of Christ himself. And I think that theme of, of, of truth and illumination and brilliance, uh, we keep in mind that it is both at the same time, beautiful, but also shocking to someone who has lived in the darkness for a long time. Oh yeah. Being in a dark room and then all of a sudden, you know, you turn on a light or imagine uh, even more, you know, Christ himself descends down and is shining into your room and, and uh, it would take some adaptation. But I think that uh, is partially what, uh, what St. John Paul II is, is reminding us of is that, you know, something that is bright and shining might hurt at first a little bit, Mm -hmm. but as you adapt to it and acclimate yourself, it becomes the most splendid thing that you could ever imagine and it illuminates the rest of your life.
0: I think that's very well said. One thing that I thought about with this title is that we don't use the word splendor right. very often. <laughs> it's, not, it's not commonly used no, in our vernacular. No. I I don't know when the last time was that I used splendor in, in everyday conversation. It's, it's just, it's a it's a, it's an uncommon word. And I think it's uncommon because it can only be used to describe things that are exceptionally Right. Splendid, right? Mm-hmm. And and we we do use splendid. I've used that one here and there, but we we normally use that in a in a cheap way, you know, like how was your time at the party? Oh, it was splendid, you know. And and if I say that, it's probably more in like a sort of cheeky, like maybe I'll I'll throw in a fake English accent or something. Splendid. <laughs> um, what I'm not capturing is the meaning of the word splendor. And so when we think about splendor, I think we need to think about like you were saying brilliance, illumination, uh, maybe the splendor of a King, right? Like these, mm-hmm. these, uh, these connotations that involve enormous brilliance, brightness, or royalty perhaps. And that's, I think what, what this is all about. I thought of several things, the passage in Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light mm-hmm. unto my path. And thinking about that. So this, if, if we situated in that Uh, in that context, when we think about the splendor of truth, this moral truth specifically about the, the way that God created man free to pursue himself, um, then that sort of reorients everything that we see and think about our own identities, right? Because it's, it's that truth that illuminates everything else about our existence. And that made me think of this C.S. Lewis quote, quote, I'm not sure if you've heard it, but he, uh, I'll probably butcher it a little bit, but he said (laughs) something like, I believe in Christianity, in the same yeah. way that I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else, right. and that really, that to me sort of highlights the thread in this encyclical, that we don't just we don't just declare that Jesus is the Son of God because we want to worship some deity. This is not the church is not the Israelites in the desert erecting a golden cow to worship. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, we worship Jesus because he is the truth that sets us free, right? The truth shall set you free. Also another passage from John. Um, I think that, isn't that the conversation with Pontius Pilate? It is. Um, So you you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So we worship Jesus because he is the truth that sets us free and he frees us to be fully human in the way that God intended when he made us in his image. Okay, so question two. Does this encyclical help you understand the relationship between freedom and the law better? Because when I read the Pauline epistles, this is a very common theme in, in the theology of St. Paul, right? Um, under the law or not under the law, free or not free. And of course, Paul is coming at this from the perspective of a Jew, right? He says, uh, you know, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? Born under the law uh, of the circumcision, the whole nine yards, and then he becomes an apostle to the Gentiles. So a very, a very unlikely candidate to do that, but Christ selected him to do that, set him free to do it, and, and he did it. And in the Pauline epistles, we get a lot of this terminology of the law um, and how the law sort of illuminated the moral truth for people, but now they're set free in Christ. And I've always thought that, that these passages can be kind of hard to digest, especially to the eyes of a 21st century Westerner right. who did not grow up under the Jewish law. Right, and so right. to us, born in America, for example, uh, in our case, we've, we've not had... Any significant laws placed on us, and right. even if I was not a cradle Catholic, you were. Uh, I don't know what your practices in your family growing up were, but most Catholics, you know, don't even have don't even follow the laws of abstaining from meat on Fridays because it's not it's not a law in the in the United States Conference anyway. It's a suggestion, and you know, it's good to give up something. I think the mm-hmm. the conference says now, but it's not a law. So um, even in uh, even in our time the laws that we follow are barely laws at all. Right. And so I th- so I think that can be kind of difficult, but for me this encyclical unlocked the freedom law relationship a little bit more. What do you what do you think?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you've really touched on something that goes to the core of uh, kind of our modern sensibilities and our society, which is this idea that the law is something that binds us and restricts us, right? Is so the the concept then is shocking at first when you you try to link freedom and the law because law is something that is in some sense, or if, if you look at it in one light, is restricting your freedom. And then you have this uh, encyclical that is saying, well, well, no, that's not what the law is doing. And I think it really comes uh, forward in the development of, of modern law. Uh, when we look back into history, uh, especially back into the, the you know the times of, say, the ancient Greeks, where the role of government was perceived very differently. Mm-hmm. And the role of government at that time was viewed to be as uh, more than just providing goods and services, and then staying out of your life, the role of government was to actually play the one of the foremost roles in the moral development of its citizens. Right, uh, and so it's almost pedagogical; it teaches exactly. Them. And you know, I think we have a lot to be thankful for, and I think one of one of the things we had to be thankful for in in our more modern development is the Roman uh, Empire fell. <laughs> <laughs> you could say that, <laughs> put it that way. But, you, you know, we are, we are in many ways blessed to have a, a society where, you know, the government is not quite that intrusive. Sure. Right. And we're able to live our lives uh, in a, in don't a, tread on a, me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, as that, as it developed and, and we look at how more modern law plays out, you know, Bishop Robert Barron, uh, actually just today, I think, I watched it today, and I think he released it today. He gave this really great talk on some of these uh, themes, and he's doing it in the context of reviewing uh, George Weigel's new book called The Sensibility of, or "The Conservative Sensibility. And he talks a- about how modern- Did you say George
0: Weigel or George Will?
1: George Will. Sorry, George Will, yeah, okay. I don't want to confuse those. Those <laughs> two very different, very different people. George Will's uh, conservative sensibility. And, uh, you know, Bishop Barron talks about how in modern society, kind of a more negative uh, framework of the law, negative meaning, you know, it's not necessarily playing a role in, in, you know, your, your everyday life in the sense of your moral edification. But he says, you know, to all the benefits that's brought us has also brought kind of a very thin uh, structure to moral society as well. And uh, when we look then at this idea that the laws educate us, then the absence of laws provides a sort of negative education. Right. And then we look to the laws that we do have, whether we want to admit it or not are in some way educating our moral sensibilities. Right. If you have, um, you know, laws that permit certain activities uh, for example, you know, laws that permit uh, abortion, then there is in some sense a moral implication in that law that this is morally okay. Right. And I think that's very uncomfortable for a lot of people to think about that the mere existence of that law uh, is educating our society as to what is morally correct. And so where does then, um, in in the terms of Catholic social teaching, how do we inject Catholic social teaching to then have a more positive aspect? And that is um, part of what this encyclical is really laying out for us, is the opportunity to view the law as an educator and something that is going to, um, to teach us. And if it's teaching us and it's properly ordered, then it's teaching us the truth. Right, so it's bringing us back to truth, which ultimately then is setting us free, as Christ would say.
0: But Kevin, you can't inject Catholic social teaching into America. This is separation of <laughs> state territory.
1: <laughs> well, I think, uh, I, I, I think I, I'm maybe a little bit more in line with um, with uh God, his name is sli- is slipping me now. Cardinal Philadelphia,
0: uh, Chaput, Chaput, Charles Chaput, who yeah. um,
1: really I think kind of admonishes us properly to, as Catholics, have a more public role with our um, our part in society and, and shaping, you know, the moral foundation of our society. Sure, it's, you know, it's one thing, we don't want to kind of, an, what Bishop Barron calls a nanny state where right. government is interfering in every aspect of our lives, but shouldn't government be guiding us properly um, on the most important aspects of our lives?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and Obviously I was just giving you a hard time with that, but because a Catholic (laughs) legislator could never stand up and say the church says this, therefore I propose this bill, right? right? Because um, there'd be lots of crying foul there, but Mm -hmm. two things I would say just in response and in agreement with what you were just adding, you know, I don't want to go down a a rabbit hole on the abortion issue. That's a a very worthy topic, but it it brings us a little bit away from the topic at hand here, but on the abortion issue, for example, um, in a hypothetical situation in which there is a, a national law passed by Congress to prohibit abortions, that's a good thing now the follow-on would be are you punishing women who obtain abortions and i i would argue that a law prohibiting abortions and yet having no penalty for abortions would still be a good law because it would be fulfilling what you were saying is the instructive or pedagogical part of law right. telling people these are the bounds right and if you if you cross them well we're not going to arrest you we're not going to throw you in prison we're not even going to find you but you've crossed a line and we need you to be aware of that right hmm. That's absolutely. totally different from a law that um, exists to just protect your ability to do anything and everything you want. Right. Right. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. And on to something there. The second thing is with respect to this encyclical, I think the exhortation from John Paul II is well, obviously, I mean, you already mentioned this. It's to the bishops. Right. It's not to mm-hmm. uh, it's not heads of state. Right. <laughs> uh, it's not uh, to the president, uh, to right. President Clinton in America. It is to the bishops in the world many of whom are in Western societies like our own, saying we need to do better at representing to people what the truth of human existence is all about. Uh, Because uh, St. John Paul II recognized where we were going and where we were in 93 and where we are um, now. And it's a problem. It's a big problem. I was just reading today an article that was saying, um, it was just talking about rising suicide rates, especially among the young. Um, in France, uh, this is not the young, but in France, I think so far the total this year of police officers who have taken their own lives is sixty-four. Mm-hmm. That's a remarkably high number. I mm-hmm. saw a stat that uh, also in the same article it looked fake, so I want to fact check it. So don't take this as gospel. But uh, the fact that the 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 article said that one in seven eighth graders in Montana have attempted suicide. Oh my gosh! Which it, it does sound too high. It sounds um, mm-hmm. even if it's even if it's one tenth that. Honestly, like sure. one in seventy, that to me is outrageous. Um, There's a problem here. And I think uh, part of that stems from people not understanding who they are Mm. and the splendor of this truth that John Paul II lays out. The reason that he's encouraging bishops to hold fast to this and to teach it and to catechize well is that Christianity has an answer. And that's the beautiful splendor that John Paul II is talking
1: about. I think that's absolutely true, and uh, I'm I'm looking for the section. I don't think I'm gonna find it in time, but uh, there's a beautiful section in here where uh, where John Paul talks about uh, Pontius Pilate's question yeah. to Christ, which "What is truth?" and uh, John Paul says that that is the question of a a person who has really lost the essence yes, of their soul, right. right? Someone who is so far gone and so unable to. See the truth that's standing in Pontius Pilate's case right in front of him.
0: Let me just right. let me just intervene here or interrupt. Uh, I found it. So Pilate's question, John Paul II writes, "What is truth?" reflects the distressing perplexity of a man who often no longer knows who he is, whence he comes, and where he is going.
1: And that sounds a lot like a slavery, doesn't it? Yes. Whereas it truth does. would set you free in that case. Exactly.
0: <laughs> which is exactly what Jesus tells Pilate. Right. So yeah, it, it really is remarkable, and this encyclical is remarkable. I think. The 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 obvious next follow on then to this conversation is where does this or what does this mean for evangelization? Mm. So if if we have this great truth, right, if we have this wonderful, splendid, bright, shiny truth, what does that mean for our evangelization efforts? Don't hide it under a bushel. The scripture is pretty clear about that, right? Right. Set it on a hill. City um, on a hill cannot be hidden. For for me, I think the idea behind this encyclical is that Christianity is never on the defensive, Mm -hmm. right? We are, we're perhaps beset on all sides by many foes. Uh, John Paul II talks about de-Christianization, as I already discussed, but we're not on the defensive because we have nothing to uh, be defensive about. Mm -hmm. We only have things to be on the offensive about.
1: Yeah, and you know, I'll I'll be the first to admit, evangelization is incredibly difficult, right? It is. And I think there can be a temptation in our evangelization. Well, I'm struggling with that (laughs) word right now. Uh, There's a temptation to downplay some of the demands that the faith puts on us. Because you're talking to someone who, uh, you know, maybe is not a a member of the faith or is uh, kind of straying away from the faith. And you're trying to, with all your heart and soul to bring them back. And then your first uh, act is to tell them, well, to admonish them or right. to, to tell them about, you know, things that maybe they want to do that they can't do or shouldn't do because it's actually leading them away from the truth. It's leading them uh, away from their freedom. Uh, but ultimately the message of this cool and I think it comes through is that altering that message is attempting to alter the truth in some form, uh, which falls into the trap of, um, of basically taking someone else's freedom away mm-hmm. by uh, not giving them the truth in its unvarnished and most splendid form.
0: Yeah, and it's devastating to souls. Mm. That's the worst part. Right. That this is seriously destructive to souls. And it's, it's really sad, I think, when people don't hold fast to the truth in this regard. Uh, they don't recognize that following Jesus carries a significant cost, just like that man in Matthew 19. Mm-hmm. What must I do? Okay, we'll follow all these commandments. Okay, done. Okay, now go sell all these things and give it to the poor. Right? It's not just about and, and uh Saint John Paul II talks about this in the Encyclical too. It's not just about following the the uh, the Thou shalt not laws. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not just about doing the bare minimum. Those are clear, right? It's clear that you shouldn't commit adultery. It's clear that you shouldn't steal. It's clear that you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife. Right? It's the, all those things are very clear, and the the sort of the bottom bounds of behavior are already set. Right, but. What's not set and what is literally limitless is the upper bounds, right? Mm-hmm. What will we do to follow God and where will God lead us if we do that? And because God is infinite as we are united to him, that is literally an infinite destination as well. And so there is no upper bound to that. But when people overlook even those those basic baseline moral boundaries, they miss out on this incredible potential that begins with our freedom and our freedom to choose and pursue
1: God. Yeah. And you know, if you if you like me struggle with evangelization and are looking for uh, you know, some practical guidance and, and some help for that, there's a great podcast out there. I mean, not as good as this one, of course. <laughs> not as good as a Great Catholic. podcast uh called Every Knee Shall Bow. And it is uh put on by uh two men who are evangelization ministers uh and they do an excellent job of explaining some of their own stories, some practical methods. They roll up every episode with uh, a couple of tips on how to uh, actually apply evangelization in a practical manner. And it is an absolutely uh, wonderful way uh, to learn how to evangelize. And I would recommend it to anyone who uh, is looking for some of uh, those tips and some help in that uh, part of their life.
0: Yeah. Isn't Michael Gormley one of the two guys? Yeah. Yeah. He's really good. I like his stuff a lot. Um, Just on this point too, about moral demands though, it's, it's uh it's really sad to me when people compromise on these things, because I think one central takeaway from the Christian faith, for me at least, is that it is hard. Mm. There are, I have lots of friends who are not Christians and their lives, as far as the the day-to-day choices they make are in many cases, I don't want to say all, I don't want to pretend I know more than I do, but in many cases easier than mine, right? Because Mm -hmm. the, the demands, the moral demands that Christianity places on you are hard. And they're intentionally hard. Um, but it's only through following those demands that you can be free to pursue other things. So, I mean, uh, maybe, an, maybe an example would be a uh, a person who loves brownies, but is also diabetic, right?
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Like
0: if you love brownies, but you're also diabetic, if you eat a lot of brownies, you will injure your body and right. maybe die. Maybe go into a sugar coma and um, all of that. It'll be bad. Uh, and so you need to cultivate a disciplined life in which you limit your brownie intake. Right. right? And you have a good insulin regimen and you eat healthy and all your other meals and you can maybe have a small brownie once a week or something like that. But doing that will allow you to live longer and thus enjoy more brownies. Right. So there's a, there's a, there's a natural logic to this. I think that we just don't think of applying in the, in our, in our sort of moral ontology. Um, but we need to, because, breaking the moral law not following the demands of god will be injurious to our souls in the long term
1: i think it's you know it's a good example uh, it's also though a very consequentialist example right and i think we we as human beings are very in our natures sometimes, or, or just by the way uh, our lives are ordered, we're very consequentialist because yeah. we're so linked to the physical world, right? Mm-hmm. Cause and effect. And it's easy to see, well, I'm going to do this thing and this is going to happen and what will result will either probably be good or bad. If it's bad, I'm not going to do it. If it's good, uh, then I'm going to do it. And it's yeah. a very natural way of thinking, but uh, you know, this document, this encyclical it's, cautions us against it's wrong pure consequentialism <laughs> right. uh, for the exact reason that, you know, not, Everything, and you know, things are not made good or bad merely by the outcome, right? Uh, they are in large part uh, tied to uh, partially the intention of the action. But then uh, uh, JB2 cautions us once again that the mere intention of an action is also not going to be uh, morally conclusive. It's not going to tell us like because you and your heart meant good when you did something that doesn't make it right Uh, There are still things that you could intend to do something and, and your intent is perfectly good, but the act itself is still disordered and it's not going to, um, ultimately be morally licit. Yeah. Let's,
0: let's pause here real quick and talk about the three systems that he criticizes. So the first is what he calls a teleological mm -hmm. ethic system. And correct me if I'm wrong, as I understand that, that is basically what you were just outlining the the intention one, right? So what is the. Uh, from TELOS, right, meaning end. What is the intended end of your action, right? So, um, one system evaluates actions based on the intent, okay? Intent's good, it's important, it's not everything. Uh, second system that is wrong is consequentialism, and that just simply judges uh, actions based on outcome. Mm-hmm. It's very simple, um, very easy, uh, also wrong. <laughs> and then the third one is um, what he calls proportionalism. And I think I think uh, he he I think spends the least amount of time on that one, but mm-hmm. as I understand it, he's saying that that is the system that evaluates actions based on whether or not the good outweighs the bad.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's, um, linked it's not to
0: consequentialism.
1: Yeah, it, I would say it's not quite clearly like a one to one link to utilitarianism, mm-hmm. um, but it's very similar to like uh, the moral system of John Stuart Mill, uh, where. You know, you're ultimately attempting to do the greatest good and cause the least amount of harm. And right. whichever act is going to lead you to that end, that's the one uh, that you you kind of go after. And, you know, that sounds good in theory, but uh, JP2's big criticism and, and a very good criticism is that, you know, we're dealing with uh, consequences or outcomes that are impossible to calculate. Even if you had the best supercomputer in the world, it's not going to tell you if you do action X the great or the amount of good is going to be this far uh, superior to the amount of evil or bad that's gonna
0: well a very simple perhaps absurd analogy what if the what if a super genius who would have discovered a universal cure for cancer was killed in the hiroshima bombing right right so the you know i think consequentialists often point to that it's you know killed this many people in hiroshima nagasaki but we saved millions of lives on the Japanese islands in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, there are limitations. Like what about second order, third order beyond that effects that would certainly ripple down. Right.
1: Right. It's completely unknowable. Yeah. And
0: and because it's unknowable, it's incalculable. Mm -hmm. Okay. So those are the three ethical systems. So uh, what does JP2 say is the right way to evaluate an action?
1: Right. So ultimately it's going to be, uh, it's going to be, partially the intention mm-hmm. um so you have to in order to uh actually un- to clearly have moral uh, licitness I don't know if licitness is <laughs> the word but for something to be morally licit it has to be done in the right frame of mind right uh and it also has to be in accordance with the truth the action itself the action yeah. itself yeah. you know it's a it's kind of a tall order and and you know what comes out of that is you could be uh, someone who is, and this is, this is what I think where it gets hard for, uh, a lot of people because, uh, y- you know, you want to believe that uh, your friend who is a good person or, or who acts in what you would consider to be a very good way, um, is also going to have, you know, all the benefits of, of, of heaven and eternal life. And, you know, of course we have no way of being able to tell whether, um, the mercy of God is going to extend, uh, you know, to everyone or not. And we hope that it will, but of course that the church isn't going to, I think you, you address this very properly on your, uh, an earlier podcast about, uh, Baltazar. And, oh yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, the, the other church doesn't, the church doesn't right? anti-canonize anyone. Right? right. Yeah.
1: And so, you know, ultimately what JP two says in this encyclical is, you know, you can do something, uh, that is very good and has a good outcome and be completely ignorant of the good that, you are doing and it will still be a good act, Mm -hmm. but it's not in any way forming your conscious or forming your soul. So it's not as though the benefits of that good act in terms of a moral uh, development sense are accruing to you because you're not acknowledging you, you don't, you're, you're doing it. um,
0: So there are positive externalities, but there are no positive internalities, if we can call them that. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) So people benefit from, from what you're doing, but your soul doesn't benefit. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's a scary thought. Mm-hmm, but uh, so much of this discussion of moral theology that St. John Paul II talks about focuses on the unity of the human person. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so important and it's a distinctive thing in Christian theology that we are unions of body and soul. Um, we're not we're not, you know, Platonists. We're not mm-hmm. Gnostics. We're people who have um, mortal bodies and immortal souls. And... By the way, our mortal bodies will be resurrected one day at the last at the last day, and that has implications because what we do with our bodies actually matters, and that's why the teleological position fails because it's not all about, about intent; it's also about what we do. And on this point, JP two really targets people who are who have been attacking the dogma of mortal sin, right? Who say that the church has been too strong or overstated mortal sin in the past, et cetera, and the teaching of the church on on mortal sin. Um, I will look up the catechism in just a moment, so I make sure I get this absolutely right. But it has to be has to meet three criteria. Mm-hmm. The first is that the act actually has to be grave matter. Right. The second is that it has to be carried out with deliberate knowledge, mm-hmm. and the third is that it has to be carried out with full consent. Right, and that goes to the intent part of that, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's both intent and act. And um, this was actually a little bit of a stumbling block for me when I was becoming Catholic because in the um, I sort of came from the the once saved, always saved world of Protestant theology, right? As mm-hmm. soon as you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, uh, you say the sinner's prayer, you are good, good to go forever. No matter what you do, you are going to heaven. And it's sort of a it's a it's a weird catch twenty two because then if I would if I were to go on like a murderous killing spree and stop going to church, then people would just say, well, he never was an actual Christian. And so like it's it's a it's sort of an unverifiable assurance of salvation. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a very strange belief system that uh i obviously no longer cling to um but coming from that background it was hard for me to believe that i could commit one mortal sin and imperil my soul right in that one moment yeah and this encyclical i think very clearly outlines why exactly that is and that's because every mortal sin by definition is a fully deliberate mm-hmm. fully consensual choice to do something very bad, right? right. Those are like, there's those the three criteria. And so, um, you know, and, and we'd have to go to a, a moral theologian for the details on this, but going and premeditating someone's murder, for example, mm-hmm. that is uh pretty obviously a mortal <laughs> sin, right? Right. There are other things that are, um, we might say gray area, uh, things that are grave matter, but, uh, deliberate consent is, is in question, you know, the behavior of an addict, for example,
1: right? a force of habit.
0: Um, yeah, exactly. Something like pornography, right? If um, I don't want to downplay the seriousness of, of pornography, pornography is definitely a grave matter. Uh, viewing pornography is grave matter. But if you are addicted to it, that can, can not, not, not necessarily does, but can lessen your ability to, to give deliberate consent in engaging in that compulsive addictive behavior, right? So those are things that you need to work out with your pastor or your spiritual, or your spiritual director. But going back to the, the encyclical, the problem at hand, uh, this explains why mortal sin does exactly this. Every every act that the human being makes is an act closer or farther from Jesus Christ. Right. And when we choose to engage in an act that constitutes grave matter, and we do it knowing full well what we've gotten ourselves into, that separates us from God because right. it's our choice. And and there's something beautiful. I mean, there's something scary in that, right? right? But there's also something beautiful because we're not pawns. God doesn't want us to be pawns. God wants us to freely choose him. And the wonderful splendid thing is that he gives us the freedom to choose or to reject him.
1: Right. And JP too, I think brings out very well and very importantly uh, in kind of the, the last criteria that you just laid out, he talks about ignorance, right? And he breaks out the church's teaching of the difference between what he calls vincible, right? The church calls vincible ignorance versus and invincible ignorance, right? So when we think about vincible ignorance and how it is going to play into moral culpability, Vincible is ignorance is that case where you have the full capacity to go out and find the truth. Right. You can easily uh and maybe you're a person who has very easy access to a catechism and you could very quickly and easily go out and find of uh, the action you are about to commit or the choice you're trying to make uh, is in accordance with the teaching of the, the magisterium or not, and you willfully choose not to. That is invincible ignorance, right? And then you have your invincible ignorance, which is the case of a person who, uh, for whatever reason, whether it's um, you know access or capacity, whatever, uh, they, under no circumstances, are ever going to be able to break that ignorance. It's, it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And still, the act itself is disordered and the act itself is going to be bad, but the person may not be morally culpable in that case. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, because they are not making a deliberate choice to run away from God.
1: But the JP two wants to make very clear and he, you know, he's really hammering the table on this. The act itself is still bad. Yes. And I think
0: Based on what I've read in this encyclical and based, based on what I want to know of St. John Paul II, I think why he wants to be so emphatic about that is because that also then applies to people who who have access to the truth, right? Mm-hmm. But who are creative in sort of devising explanations or mm-hmm. reasons for why acts are no longer bad right. or acts should be judged according to historical context. And JB two talks about that in this as well. <laughs> that yes, of course, historical context change. historical culture has changed. Uh, the very fact that they do is act, in fact evidence of human freedom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that does not change the morality of an act, right? right. Um, and so that's a very important point as well. I think on this point that we need to discuss conscience very, very briefly. And this <laughs> is a this is a very rich, rich realm of church teaching. Uh, in the past, as I understand it, in the past. Century, the church has um, really emphasized the importance of conscience and um, the importance of following your conscience. But the exhortation to follow your conscience does not always mean that your conscience is right, because of course, consciences can reach divergent conclusions. Right? Mm. Um, hopefully, your conscience, Kevin, and my conscience would reach the same conclusions because we are we, we try to be faithful Catholics. We're trying to follow Christ. But my conscience and the conscience of you know someone I walk up to on the street might be very different because. Of the ways that we've tried to form our consciousness or haven't tried, you know, to just the way we sort of um, formed our conscience by happenstance, and so consciences are not infallible, but we have an obligation. We have a twofold obligation, basically. And uh, I think uh, this is this is in the encyclical as well. Um, the blessed, soon to be saint John Henry Newman said that consciences have rights because they have duties. Mm-hmm. In other words, there are there are two things to know with the conscience. One, we have a duty to form it. And two, we have a duty to follow it. Right. And you can't have one without the other.
1: Right. And, and the that word formed, right? The church talks about a well-formed conscience. Right. And how do you form a conscience? By the law, right? Mm-hmm. By following the law. The law is your teacher. It goes back to the beginning of our conversation here. The law is your teacher. Uh, this is, you know, a theme that, uh, again, brought up by Aristotle about habit, Uh, you know, you have the law, which educates your habit. It's picked up, this teaching, this idea picked up by Thomas Aquinas, of course, and carries through that the law teaches you, it forms you, it builds you. And the opposite uh, is true, right? Your deliberate choice not to follow the law and to do so over and over and over. Or maybe, you know, one of the temptations is uh, you go to confession and you receive, you know, the grace and days or weeks later, uh, you commit the same sin and you think, oh, well, you know, now I just, I messed up. It's terrible, you, you know, you feel distraught and then you think, well, you know, I'm going to have to confess it anyway, so I might as well just keep going, right? And that's what the church calls hardness of heart, right? And that to me is the true enemy of conscience because you find yourself, you slip and you fall and then through uh, that continuation, developing that hardness of heart, your conscience loses its formation and then has to be reformed. So I think JP 2 in, in this encyclical is cautioning us against that and, and reminds us of the central role, as you said, of conscience, and, and our duty as individuals to form our own conscience and our duty as uh, Christians and Catholics to help form our fellow uh, Christian and Catholics and, and uh, non-Christians as well to help form their consciences. And part of that uh, just might be through uh, even talking about Catholic social teaching yeah. through our influence on uh, the laws that exist in our society. Or invite them to mass with you. Yeah. I, um, that's much easier than, yeah. than what I.
0: <laughs> I, the only thing I'll add to that. So you're right that law forms our consciousness, but there, but there's a second thing and John Paul II, of course, talks about this as well. He's talking to, as you mentioned, his brother bishops. And he says, look, our job is twofold, right? Teach. That's the law, right? Teach the law, teach them what they should and should not do. But then also, and this is, I think this is the really good news for the Catholic dispense the sacraments yes right Yes, and so so there's a there's a passage in here where let me see if i can find it real quick he talks about how the christian is uh, oh here we go having become one with christ the christian becomes a member of his body which is in the church by the work of the spirit baptism radically configures the faithful to christ in the paschal mystery of death and resurrection it clothes him in christ let us rejoice and give thanks exclaims saint augustine speaking to the baptized for we have become not only christians but christ marvel and rejoice we have become christ Having died to sin, those who are baptized receive new life. Alive for God in Christ Jesus, they are called to walk by the Spirit and to manifest the Spirit's fruits in their lives. Sharing in the Eucharist, the, uh, sorry, the sacrament of the New Covenant is the culmination of our assimilation to Christ, the source of eternal life, the source and power of that complete gift of self, which Jesus, according to the testimony handed on by Paul, commands us to commemorate in liturgy and in life. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, until he comes so that's super important and that i think is that that i think is why we should never be on the defensive but we should always be it's it's another another um saint john paul the second ism but the church does not impose but proposes right right like the reason that we should be so excited to share the splendor of this truth is because a it's about freedom and that's wonderful news for everybody b there are laws but they're not just bad law and they're not just laws that are not fun to follow Mm -hmm. i mean I guess there are some in there until your conscience gets sort of conformed to them. But there's also the possibility of, of radical, uh, upper bounds to mm-hmm. that, right. That stretches to infinity. And then three is that the church isn't just here to, um, to tell you you're free and then say, Oh, you're free to follow these, these rules. But actually the church is here to dispense these wonderful sacraments that extend God's grace to you. Mm-hmm. So go to mass and go to confession. If you're not baptized, you better be. That's a really good first step. Right. Go to mass. Go to confession. Um, when you're sick, receive the sacrament of healing. Uh, get married if you're called to a vocation. Be ordained if you're called to that. Uh, Kevin, jeez. Uh, oh, um, so participate <laughs> in the sacraments because that's what they're there for. They're there to dispense the grace of Christ. They're, right. They're and
1: gifts. It's, it's always a, re- a reminder. The sacraments are reminder, as uh, Paul the sixth said. Uh, about christ he said uh, having come not to judge the world but to save it he was uncompromisingly stern towards sin but patient and rich in mercy towards sinners
0: mm, that's beautiful use the sacraments use the sacraments yeah partake in the sacraments okay kevin we are about at an hour here is there anything else we should talk about before we sign off on the first the inaugural encyclopedia <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, no, I mean, this is just such rich territory. We could go on forever, but I think that well, I would encourage anyone who, who maybe starts reading this or sees it and thinks that a document like this uh, might be inaccessible. We're here to say it is accessible. It, it can be difficult at times. It is dense. It gets philosophical. It gets theological, uh, but it is worthwhile and uh, absolutely accessible.
0: And there's no reason why you can't just read this a little bit at a time. There mm-hmm. are, let's see, 100... 118 sections and the sections for the most part are two one or two paragraphs long. There are a few exceptions where they're longer, but there's no reason why you can't just set a goal of two sections a day. If you, if you do that, Mm -hmm. you'll be done in two months. So I would definitely encourage you to read it as well. The other thing I'll mention, I don't think we talked about this, but this was published shortly after the catechism of the Catholic church was published, Kevin. And that was the, that was the, the JP two version of the catechism essentially. And that's another really good document. And I think, this was published after the catechism in fact the catechism is, re- is referenced in this um because i think jb2 thought it important to sort of articulate the dogma and perhaps more importantly for these purposes the moral law mm-hmm. before then going on to articulate why it's so important that we follow the moral law and so I'd encourage you if you haven't read the Catechism to to pick it up. If that's a little daunting, because the Catechism is a, a big book, uh, <laughs> there is a compendium. I actually just saw it for the first time today. I was over at my parish and was talking to the director of religious education at my at my parish. Actually, he's the director of evangelization and discipleship. Mm. Um, the acronym for that is dead D E A D. So, uh, I gave him a hard time about that. And, uh, he says he didn't come up with it. So, uh, but anyway, I was talking <sighs> with him like at my, yeah, right. I was talking with him at my church and he showed me this compendium. It's a much, uh, a much narrower book. It is all from the catechism, but it's basically like a, a paraphrase, a paraphrased condensed catechism. So the that would that be a good place. Yeah. So I'll link that in the show notes, but it's compendium catechism of the Catholic church published by the USCCB. Okay. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there on Veritatis Splendor, Kevin. Um, folks, I will be having Kevin back on again fairly regularly. We hope. So we, we were talking about it. I think Credal Catholic has been missing a a second co-host to provide some banter here and some there. Banter. And, and uh, you know, I need someone to like rib about becoming a priest um, every now and then. So, <laughs> so Kevin's volunteered to Seems like more do than that. every
1: now and then. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, but Kevin, thanks for joining me.
1: Absolutely. Uh,
0: it was fun it's to been chat with you today. To our listeners, I'd love to hear what you thought of this, or um, I'd love to hear have you weigh in. If you think we missed anything, uh, I would love to share your feedback on the next episode. So go ahead and email creedalcatholic at vernacularpodcast.com, and Kevin and I can take a look at that and see what we missed. Uh, but thank you so much for listening. We'll be back uh, in a week or so. I have some interesting, really interesting interviews coming up that I think you'll enjoy, uh, including one that isn't quite nailed down. So I don't want to uh, spill the beans on that, but I'm, I'm pretty excited uh, to hopefully bring that to you in the next few weeks. So stay tuned for more Credo Catholic episodes. Until then, thank you so much for listening, and God bless you.